0: Overdraft fees are just the worst. Get up to $200 in fee-free overdraft with a Chime checking account. Sign up today at chime.com slash goals24. Banking services and debit card provided by the Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A., members FDIC. Spot me eligibility requirements and overdraft limits apply. Hello, hello. Thank you so much for finding Whitehall Sources. Before we get stuck into the politics for you, a quick message from the resident. These hotels, like their choice in podcasts, are exceptional. Whether you're travelling for business or leisure, at The Resident, you're offered the best rooms, prices and advice for your needs as well. We are so thrilled to be brought to you in association with The Resident, who have proudly backed us since day one. When we're booking a stay in London or Liverpool, it's The Resident we head to and it's The Resident you should head to. To find out more, click residenthotels.com.
1: We haven't chosen the most populist tax cuts, and um, you know that's why I think it's uh, you know
0: I think it's uh, silly to think about this in terms of you know the timing of the next election. We're trying to make the right decisions for the long-term growth of the British economy. But when it comes to funding public services like the NHS, which, as you know, Kay, I am deeply committed to. The way that we can afford to put more money into the NHS over the longer term is to grow the size of our economy. That is a fundamental conservative principle. Hello and welcome to Whitehall Sources. We are recording on Thursday the 23rd of November. I'm Callum MacDonald and this is Kirsty Buchanan. Hello, Kirsty.
2: Good morning to you. Um, And apologies if I sound a bit uh, croaky. I have a cold
0: that will not quit oh gosh no don't worry about it at all I am uh, I'm in the land of having put my back out like some sort of old man and also um, on the ...outside of a remarkably bad headache. So, well done everyone, we're all falling apart, but it's fine. We're here, and we're and we're glad to be with you on the podcast this week. Uh, lots to come, we're going to discuss the COVID inquiry before the end of the episode. Uh, also, migration, because new figures are out today showing... ...well, migration's not really going down particularly... Um, In fact, the numbers have been changed. The net migration figure to the UK for 2022 has been revised up to 745,000. And new figures for the 12 months until June 2023 uh, show that net migration is 672,000. So still big numbers. We'll get into those a little bit later on. But first, we want to consider... The sort of aftermath, really, of the autumn statement, which was this week, of course. Um, In a moment, we will let you hear from Ian Mulhern, who is, um, well, he was an economic advisor at the Treasury. Uh, He's now an economist and economic analyst. So we'll get his thoughts on the numbers in a mo. Kirsty, what is your sort of, by way of introduction, what is your overarching thought on the autumn statement? And after we've heard from Ian, we'll come back and dissect the politics of, of the week as well.
2: Um, Well, if you'd indulge me in two or three overarching thoughts.
0: (laughs) Yes, go for
1: it. Uh,
2: One, if you ever ever need a man to sound calm, reassuring, and like everything is in control when everything really isn't, (laughs) send for Jeremy Hunt. Good point. Um, uh, Two, uh, he had a couple of missions yesterday. One was to calm... Uh, the Conservative backbenchers, and there, there was talk uh, if there weren't tax cuts, just to give you the context of how um, rebellious parts of the Conservative Party were becoming. There was talk of voting the budget down if it didn't contain enough tax cuts to satiate the uh, tax cutting uh, arm of the party. Mm. Um, And he needed to calm that down and head off uh, a a potential very damaging rebellion. Um, And thirdly, he needed to sort of uh, pull off a balancing trick with the public, which said, look, you know, uh, things are really tough. Um, We recognize things are really tough, but we have enough headroom now, fiscal headroom to make things just a little bit easier for you. And that is our priority. Making life a little bit easier for you is the thing that we've chosen to prioritise and growth. Because ultimately, uh, if the country doesn't grow, then nothing gets any better. Living standards don't get any better. Public services don't get any better because we spend all our time with sluggish growth uh, and uh, trying to service this enormous, enormous debt that we've been left with uh, post COVID, um, uh, it was a bit of a curate's egg in that sense. It was sort of some bits of it were successful, some bits mm. of it weren't. We'll go over the politics of it in detail, but uh, but in essence, we're all too canny and wily now to uh, miss the central trick within this budget, um, which is uh, fiscal drag. Of which I'm sure we'll talk ad nauseum in a minute. Um, <laughs> yes. Uh, but but in essence, we've been given with one hand we've been given uh, a tax cut, and with another, millions more people uh, will be dragged into paying higher rates of tax mm. um, because uh, the thresholds have been frozen. So as your wages rise, you end up being drifting, if you like, into a higher rate of tax. Now just to put that in context, the national insurance giveaway, if you like, the two percent cut in national insurance. Cost the Treasury about 9 billion. Uh, the fiscal drag measure, the stealth tax that is at the heart of this budget, uh, will bring in 45 billion pounds for the Treasury. I mean, nobody missed it. Um, so it is a kind of classic give with one hand, uh, take away with the others. But what it did succeed in doing is giving him some breathing room with the backbenchers. They've uh, listened to Jake Berry, former party chairman. Uh, say you know it's not everything and obviously the tax burden remains far too high
0: but for now they'll take the win. Indeed Uh, lots more to come on the kind of ins and outs of what it all uh, means both politically and for you and for I at this point then let's have a listen to Ian Mulhern now I caught up with him immediately after the autumn statement was delivered and as the office for budget responsibility forecast and things came out and he'd been diving through them so here he is breaking down all of the numbers.
1: I think the main thing that we've seen in the autumn statement is that the uh, chancellor has obviously done a very big tax giveaway it's a 21 billion pound tax giveaway in total uh, and that has been primarily funded there's all sorts of things going on but when you look at the bottom line really that's come out of uh, real terms cuts to public uh, spending on government departments. Uh, so in the end, at the end of the forecast period, where everything is washed through, what we're seeing is they're planning to spend about £19 billion a year less on public services than they were planning to spend before today. Uh, and uh, and um, around that's funded an effectively £21 billion tax giveaway. Um, and really, most people would have said, well, those public spending plans were not really deliverable uh, before today. So it's hard to see how uh, the plans now are going to be deliverable. And so I think what we're likely to see whoever wins the next general election is that we'll probably end up uh, seeing those taxes go straight back up.
0: Right. Okay. So with that in mind, is, is, this, is this purely an election strategy? I mean, when we, we're going to get into the detail in a sec, but is there much economic uh, sort of joy in there or is this purely politics at its finest?
1: Well, I think there's a couple of things to say in the government's defence. One is, uh, part of the reason why they've got so much money to spend is that the, the freezers to tax thresholds that they put in place over recent fiscal events, have ended up raking in an awful lot more tax money than they ever expected at the time. So this money has been burning a hole in the chancellor's pocket, and uh, and he wants to give some of it back. Um, so that is part of the uh, part of the story here. Um, and there are positives as well. Like some of these things are, you know, the cut in national insurance does have a meaningful impact on. Uh, you know, people's, uh, the, the sort of labor supply, people's willingness to go and work because they'll get to keep more money in their pockets. And that will boost the economy a bit uh, by the end of the period. They're also cu- uh, cutting taxation on sort of new investments made by businesses through the full expensing thing, uh, which is also a, a, a fairly good pro-growth measure. So there are kind of material benefits to this. Uh, but the question to ask is whether any of it is really affordable in the sense of, Can we deliver the public services that people want to see uh, having done it? And I think the answer is currently no. Wow.
0: Okay. That's quite fascinating. right? Let's come back to that as well in a sec. I think one of the things you're referencing there is fiscal drag. This is where people kind of start earning more money. And because tax thresholds are frozen, you end up slipping into the next one and therefore paying at a higher rate. I noted from the OBR um, analysis that by 2028, 2029, the combined impact of freezing thresholds will raise 44.6 billion pounds. So when you say the tax take from that is enormous, that's the number. That is huge.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's absolutely huge. And what that um, means is that, uh, you know, we've heard a lot about how taxes as a proportion of GDP have hit a sort of uh, historic high, you know, they're, the highest they've ever been really uh, since, the, since the end of the Second World War. Um, and really because of that fiscal drag, they, without any other measures happening at all, they're going even higher than we thought they would go before. You know, in the jargon, this is the economy is becoming more tax-rich Uh, And the government's taking more uh, than ever expected as a result of that inflationary effect.
0: Okay, so the tax burden is something we're going to float around, I think, as we go through some of the detail now. National insurance is a headline grabber. Uh, National insurance paid by employees has been cut from 12% to 10%, and that's going to take effect from the 6th of January. Um, How does this work? So talk to us about why national insurance has become a target for the Chancellor's tax cuts.
1: Well, I think there's probably a couple of reasons. One is that he he wanted to do uh, something uh, that was broad based so that it has electoral appeal. But um, but also, I think probably uh, the choice of national insurance over uh, uh, income tax is probably quite a smart move in that it's not quite as expensive as an income tax cut. You know, the, the national insurance cut will mainly benefit working people. So it won't benefit people with income from, you know, in in investments and pensions and stuff. Uh, and therefore, it generally won't benefit pensioners. Uh, but of course, the pensioners have seen a higher Uh, uplift in the basic state pension than the rate of increase of other benefits. So there's something in there for pensioners. They're seeing faster than inflation increases. Uh, And there's something in there for working age in in that sort of national insurance cut for working age people.
0: That's really interesting. I'm going to borrow this line from the Labour Party's response. They say the National Insurance cut will not, quote, remotely compensate for hikes already in place. And so that tax burden question comes to the fore again. Um, are Labour correct? Is, is that
1: accurate? Yeah, definitely. I mean, as you mentioned, the impact of the sort of fiscal drag effect is, is really raking in tens of billions over the, the next few years and uh, the inflation we've already seen. Uh, and a kind of Nash insurance cut of, you know, amounting to about 12 billion is only a small portion of that. Uh, so freezing the thresholds is doing a lot more work to bring in tax than cutting the rate is doing and giving it back.
0: It's so helpful to get the, the kind of ins and outs of all of this. What about then growth forecasts, Ian? This is something that's... Uh, well, it's been at the forefront of many, in fact, probably all um, uh, fiscal events like this. And the Chancellor very much kind of, you know, touting the idea of growth in the Labour Party's response. They're saying this is not growth. This isn't going to work. We are the only party for growth. So growth is clearly central. And we've got updated forecasts today on economic growth as well.
1: Yeah, I mean, the short term forecasts have moved around a bit. People are expecting the, uh, the, the short term to be... Uh, There's a bit of volatility in the changes we've seen since the March forecast. But what really matters is what's the view of the forecast uh, on the long-term potential of the economy? Because what the government is allowed to spend and how much tax it has to raise really depends on that view. Are we going to see growth Uh, of sort of uh, almost 2% in in five years' time, or are we going to see growth of of much lower than 1%? Now, there's a massive difference in forecasters' views. The Bank of England thinks the economy will likely flatline and its growth potential is very, very weak. So the OBR is much more optimistic. It thinks the economy can grow at sort of 1.7% a year in, in, the, uh, you know, in four or five years' time. And if it's right, then the figures we've seen today will, be, you know, will stack up. But if the Bank of England is right, and actually the economy is not really able to grow that fast anymore, uh, then we're gonna have an even bigger hole in the public finances. So uh, the short-term growth story is, is really just noise. It's very hard to predict, it's, it's, it's very, it's very, it bounces around as we've seen with recent forecasts. What really matters is what's the sustainable level of growth that's sort of five years out. And on that, as I say, official forecasters are all over the place. They've got very different views. And it matters a lot for everyone's wage rises. It matters for tax levels. It matters for whether these numbers are, are remotely true. Uh, so we have to hope that the OBR isn't being too over-optimistic and actually uh, uh, that the bank is too pessimistic. And a couple of other
0: OBR notes. Forecast that house prices will fall by 4.7% next year because higher interest rates will lead to lower, demands, uh, lower levels of demand. And overall, house prices will be 7.6 percent lower at the end of 2024, and that's interesting to just sort of bring in a, a question around inflation and interest rates. What what can we t- what can we forecast on both of those measures?
1: Well, um, obviously, one of the big calls that the OBR has made today is it's revised up its projection for inflation. So before, it thought inflation would drop r- right away and even hit close to zero, I think, is what it said in March. Now it's revised up this inflation uh, forecast very materially, and it is still above the Bank of England's target by the end of uh, next year. Um, now, uh, that, is, that means that it's much more likely that interest rates will stay higher for longer Which in turn will create more pain in the housing market. It loads a lot of pain onto mortgage holders who might have been hanging in there hoping that interest rates would fall quickly. And on their March forecast, on the OBR's March forecast, you could have expected interest rates to fall quickly. But on their current forecast, uh, it doesn't look that way. And one wrinkle on that is, of course, uh, the government has uh, you know, decided to do a £21 billion giveaway, and it's kicking that off in January with a national insurance rise, and that will uh, create inflationary pressure, and it will hold inflation higher for longer than it otherwise would have been, which will further delay the point at which the bank starts to cut interest rates. So it is a picture of pain for some time yet for mortgage holders, I'm afraid.
0: Wow, How interesting. So just on national insurance, so abolishing class two national insurance contributions for the self-employed as well, uh, reducing the headline rate of class four national insurance by 1%. He says the combined measures will save people an average of 350 pounds, and that is in addition to employee national insurance going down from 12% to 10% as discussed. Okay, uh, what else do we need to get to? I suppose the business side of this as well, Ian, is interesting. You mentioned full expensing, which is a very zappy phrase, I'm sure you'll agree. Um, National insurance is going to sort of steal the headlines as far as perhaps the electorate at large is concerned. But there is quite a lot of um, noticeable business stuff in here too. Full expensing is one such measure.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's a pretty big measure. I I, I can't remember the exact figure, but it's around 10 billion a year in the early years. Uh, and it's a tax break for businesses making new investments, the idea being to encourage you know, one of the big reasons why the UK economy hasn't grown very much in recent years is that businesses haven't been investing uh, as much as we might have hoped. And so there's less kit and capital in the economy than, than we need if, if growth is to return. So the idea is to give, give companies a tax break that enables them to, or that rewards them for for investing uh, in in new plants and infrastructure, which uh, the government hopes will will stimulate more growth, and I think you know chances are that it will do that. So ex- initially, the chancellor announced this measure in March, and it was a very short-term two-year measure, uh, which would have no long-run impact on the on economic growth prospects. But now he's made it permanent; it's much more likely to have some kind of positive impact, uh, and so that measure is is to be welcomed. I think. Mm.
0: Uh, those benefits changes as well. Universal credit and disability benefits will increase by six point seven percent—that is September's inflation rate—rather uh, than uh, the lower October rate. And welfare recipients who don't get a job within eighteen months will have to do work experience. Those who don't look for work for a six-month period will have their benefits stopped. Some of that was trailed in the newspapers over the weekend, as well the sort of clamp down on people who sh- perhaps shouldn't be eligible for benefits, as far as the government would have it. In a, in a sort of broad take, Ian. Is this the budget, or excuse me, is this the autumn statement that you were hoping for or expecting? And I realise those are two different things, but what is your kind of broad (laughs) take on what we've heard today?
1: Uh, Well, I think it's obviously a lot of this has been trailed in advance and it turned out to be broadly as we were expecting. Um, uh, uh, but I think in terms of what we needed it's not it it is a very pre-election budget as I say you know the the um, the tax uh, you know these things can be simultaneously true the 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 tax take from the uh, threshold freezes has been much bigger than the government expected uh, and therefore it's giving some of that tax money back but it still uh, was it was necessary really to keep public services, keep the wheels on public services. And so what we've seen today is an attempt to give some of that money back. But unfortunately, I think that's just going to have to be walked back uh, by uh, whoever wins in uh, next year's general election. So unfortunately, it's a, it's a bit of a sort of spending tomorrow's money today. And uh, so this story isn't over yet, I'm afraid.
0: And it strikes me with that in mind, Ian, that's that's an easy hook for the Labour Party, surely, in opposition to grab onto. Where, where Jeremy Hunt wants to sell this kind of upbeat story, you know, my hard work means we've turned a corner and so here's some money coming back to you. Actually, it would be quite easy to flip that quite quickly based on all that we've discussed on its head to say, mm, hang on a second, tax burden still high, growth prospects not good, inflation rates still going to remain higher than we would like it to be for for, for some time to come.
1: I think that is the vulnerability for the government, and, and that argument will will play out. What, what's more of a problem for the opposition, or indeed for the government, if it wins the next election, is that the reality of the kind of spending, uh, uh, departmental spending limits that they've got in place is only going to hit uh, from twenty twenty five onwards, really, and so uh, that is uh, something that that it won't have any real implications for you know the person in the street. And therefore, it won't. Ne- it doesn't necessarily feature in the debate as highly as perhaps it should. But it is the looming hole in the public finances, really.
0: Ian, thank you very much indeed. Thanks for your time and for your insight, your expertise, your analysis. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Karen. That's Ian Mulhern, who was an advisor at the Treasury, uh, now at the Resolution Foundation as well. And actually on that note, Kirsty, the analysis, and as these things kind of uh, unfold in the days after the autumn statement, the analysis continues, doesn't it really? And the Resolution Foundation uh, reckons that British voters will be £1,900 worse off between the last general election and next year's general election whenever that may, may come, of course, we'll talk about that in a sec. Uh, but the Resolution Foundation think tank said, for the first time on record, households will still be significantly poorer over the course of the parliament. So from 2019 to 2024. And that is, well, it, I mean, that's fuel for Labour's fire, isn't it? If they if they shout about that, then that might unravel any sense of optimist, uh, optimistic giveaways from this week's awesome statement.
2: Yeah, look, I mean, Ian's far cleverer than I am, uh, so I won't uh, tread over his ground and embarrass myself by pretending that I understand (laughs) uh, all the economics of this. But in essence, um, uh, it it sums up for me a little bit like this, which is the Chancellor saying to the country, uh, look, there are good reasons why everything is so shit. Um, We're making it our priority to make things a little less shit for you, but things are still historically shit. (laughs) <laughs> um uh, now, excuse all the swearing uh, <laughs> so in essence you know they've made um, they've made growth a priority uh, mm. and I think it's a better budget or, overall for business and business investment than it is for individuals. They've made easing the tax burden a little bit better for the public but in essence uh, if a picture speaks a thousand words then uh, a, a couple of graphs have just you know bulldozed all the kind of reassuring Jeremy Hunt delivery and all the kind of, um, you know, uptick measures like, you know, increasing universal credit, increasing the state pension, increasing Mm -hmm. the national living wage, cutting national insurance. All of that is good. And all of that's a nice priority for them to, to think is important for people to ease their burden a bit. But if you look at the graphs... That are in the OBR's forecast. There was a reason I suspect that Liz Truss didn't want the OBR uh, forecast anywhere near her budget last year. If you look at them, our tax burden, even allowing for these measures, is worse than at any period since 1948. So our tax burden is higher than at any period since 1948. And our disposable income is worse than at any period it's been since 1955. So, you know... Thanks very much for the for the for the you know the slight easing of our burden, but the reality is is that we are still hugely overtaxed. Uh, we have very little disposable income, and added to that, we don't have very good public services at the moment anymore. And I think the Chancellor went out this morning and was and was perfectly fair in saying, look, you know, we spent four hundred billion pounds in COVID supporting businesses, supporting individuals, keeping the economy economy afloat. And there was always going to have to be a time when we came back and recouped that. Mm. The amount of money we are spending on debt as a country at the moment is eye-watering. And public services only get better if two things, one, if your economy grows, and two, if you're not spending all the extra money on just servicing this huge, huge debt you've got. So when we've got high interest rates, the debt burden of this country just gets worse and worse and worse, and you're not going to improve public services until we grow and until we've brought back down that debt um, you know, a little bit. And it was interesting to note that of those the run-ups to the budget was um, uh, Rishi Sunak kind of rolling the pitch and saying, look, we had five pledges at the start of the year. Three of them were economic ones, which was uh, bringing down debt as a proportion of GDP. Uh, one was uh, ensuring growth, and the other was uh, halving inflation. And we have succeeded in all three. Now, you know, you can debate those. And you also meanly point out that they've jettisoned the other two, because they have singularly flailed on those and replaced them with five new pledges for 2024. Yes, right. uh, but nevertheless, what they were trying to say is, look, you know, we are turning a corner. Now, I thought that was an oversell. And I think most Political media commentators also thought it was an oversell because that's very hard to say. We've turned a corner. Things are only going to get better from here on in when you've got such a massive, massive tax burden. But there are a couple of traps in here for Labour, you know, and mostly around the stealth tax stuff. So all that Labour is going to be asked now between. So there are uh, four million people who over the space of between now and 2028 will be dragged into paying income tax who don't pay income tax at all at the moment because their wages are too low and because of fiscal drag and ironically because interest rates are quite high and inflation is quite high and therefore wages are um going to go up at a fair old pace four million of those people by the end of 2028 will be paying the 20 percent rate of income tax now these are by no means uh wealthy people and the question that Labour will face between now and the next election is, you know, if you think this is bad, are you going to unfreeze the threshold? Are you going to raise the threshold and save these 4 million people from being dragged into paying tax? So it's not entirely uh, all, you know, bricks going out and no incoming for Labour. It's a tricky one for them too.
0: So that's one trap for Labour. I think one of the other interesting ones is on a related note, actually, Kirsty, We were just talking about public services there. The Institute for Fiscal Studies say that the tax cuts will be paid for by the biggest real terms cut to spending for some government departments since austerity. This is the IFS and indeed the Resolution Foundation have, have said it as well. So this adds to the kind of difficulty for any incoming government that they're going to have to deal with um, radically uh, cut public services and government departments.
2: Oh, for sure. Look, you know, uh, the government's been quite honest. Certain departments, spending departments, will be protected. Um, obviously, health being the, the primary one. But other departments, departments like the Ministry of Justice uh, and Transport, will not be protected. And their cuts over the next few years are absolutely eye-watering. Mm. Um, and again, we're heading in for... It's, it's all kind of very kind of 2010 all over again, if you like. It's a good old-fashioned tax and spend uh, choice for people, because no doubt, you know, the Labour will attack on this being, you know, uh, running down public services, uh, massive tax burden, dragging more people into paying tax. It's all out an outrage. Okay, the answer back to that is, well, okay, what would you do? And how would you pay for it? Mm. Fundamentally, there are a limited amount of ways that that you pay for things in this country. You either tax people more, you grow your economy, uh, and you or you spend it. You know, and what are the uh, what are the choices for this? For a, for a Labour party that's already committed, by the way, albeit having kind of put it back to the back end of a parliament, but it's already committed to spending 28 billion pounds extra, not recycled extra, mm. on investment in growing a, a, a green economy. And it's a perfectly sensible thing to do. Look, you know, a we need uh, to transition to. Uh, more renewable energy for uh, both to cut the cost of energy and also for our own energy security. Uh, But also it's a great job creation for our country and it's it's a perfectly sensible strategy to have. And it's nice to see the Labour Party have an industrial strategy because uh, business is still waiting for the Conservative government to have one, ironically. I don't think we've had one since... Uh, Theresa May's brilliant modern industrial strategy, um, <laughs> which wasn't the most riveting read, but was at least an overarching plan that businesses could work to. And mm-hmm. I think, you know, businesses have seen a lot of flip-flopping around. So, yeah, we are heading for a, a kind of tax and spend argument of an election, really, aren't we? Which is, yeah. you know, okay, look, you know, our services are crumbling. Uh, people are taxed up to their rivals, so they can't be taxed anymore. How do you propose to to spend you know, to, to improve anything. Because if you can't tax people more, um, then the only way forward is growth and or spending cuts. Um, and looking at the OBR's predictions for growth over the next few years, those have also been downgraded and look pretty sluggish. Mm. So we're back to spending cuts again, I'm afraid. And, you know, it's an interesting one because Rachel Rees, when she stood up to to respond after Jeremy Hunt um uh, had delivered his his autumn statement, she kind of summed it up in the opening sentence. And she said, you know, in essence, she said, look, does anybody feel any better off after 13 years of Conservative government? And does anybody think our public services are better off after 13 years of Conservative government? Okay, mm. fine. That's the easy point to make, but the far harder point for Labour. And things will get tougher for Labour as we get towards an election. They will get much more interrogation than they've had so far under the media. is If you want to improve things, how are you going to pay for them?
0: Yeah. I think as well then, with all of that in mind, we come to election fever or otherwise. So the promise to cut national insurance for millions of people is going to kick in. That's going to kick in at the beginning of January rather than April, as would sort of be the, the convention for an autumn statement. And so it has fueled speculation of a potential May election. Now, I have said out loud, I don't know if I've said it on the podcast, but I've said out loud, I'm f- I'm firmly of the belief that the election will be in May. And I have been for some time. Now, I'm happy to be proved wrong on that. But lest we forget my Nicola Sturgeon prediction around this time last year, uh, which proved to be spot on. Uh, but yes, there's speculation that he might go for an election in May. What do you think?
2: Um... I think a couple of things. I think w- what they did yesterday politically in terms of an election was keep their options open. Um, I've always thought May was more likely, mm. but the reality is is the government will go to the polls when it thinks it has the greatest chances of either A winning or B looking at the polls, mitigating and stemming its losses. You know no prime minister will rush to throw away power. And uh, no prime minister will rush to ruin seats or not save seats if he thinks that just hanging on that little bit longer, seeing things can turn around, throwing a bit more stuff at the wall and seeing if it sticks. No prime minister would would, would go to the polls, even in May, if they look anything like they do now, if he didn't think there was a chance that they'd get better. So, um I don't think it's proof of direction of travel. I think it's proof uh, of a government that's trying to keep its options open.
0: And, he, and most importantly also, of
2: all, I think yeah. it's proof of a, of a government that's trying to manage its own party and stop them collapsing into an election because of such open revolt uh, over an autumn statement that didn't include any tax cuts.
0: That's interesting. And that pieces together what Beth Rigby, uh, political editor at Sky News was tweeting about elections last night. So she had, senior government source tells me Conservative Party has been told to be ready for an election from January the 1st, with Isaac Levido, Tory campaign director, who's currently number 10, joining CCHQ as of the beginning of January, full time. But she adds to that, told by another senior Tory source plugged into CCHQ, that the move by Isaac Levito has been planned for a while, Uh, they have to get going in January, and they are planning for November, but want to be ready for me. Why, says Beth Rigby, in case the autumn statement lands brilliantly well and polls polls close, they go early, or if things are going badly and a confidence vote is called, they can go early. So the message is, prepare for November, but be ready for me. Overdraft fees are just the worst. Get up to $200 in fee free overdraft with a Chime checking account. Sign up today at slash goals24. Banking services and debit card provided by the Bancorp Bank NA or Stride Bank NA members FDIC. Spot me eligibility requirements and overdraft limits apply. Let me tell you about the resident hotel where I just stayed. That's right, I have been to The Resident in Liverpool for a lovely, lovely stay. I have to be honest, it was wonderful. And I'm not just saying that, I promise you it was great. The warmest of welcome from the lovely reception team, including a lovely welcome card signed by Megan and The Resident team. We were offered a map, we were offered guidance on where to go for food and for drinks. The location was great. We had several activities in Liverpool. We had a friend's birthday dinner... Then we were bowling. We were doing all of that stuff. And all of it was within a 10 minute walk of where the hotel was, which was perfect. Not only that, we had guidance on the best local restaurants and bars where we could also get discounts as a result of staying at the resident. The little kitchen in the hotel room was very, very helpful for coffee drinkers. Unbelievably, I'm not one. There's a little coffee machine right there as well. Do you know what was lovely as well? City centre location Double, double glazing. There was the outdoor window, then an indoor window. No noise, I slept like an actual log. Beautiful room, very spacious, well-equipped, lovely hotel, lovely staff, lovely location. Take this as a personal endorsement. I've been there, done that, and you should do the same. Stay at the resident. on from the autumn statement because we want to discuss the migration numbers as well from today uh, freshly published net migration reaches seven hundred and forty-five thousand record is the front page or the headline indeed on the times website wow, right it? now yeah it's quite a lot this is because the office for national statistics has revised its estimate for immigration oh. figures um from six hundred and six thousand to seven hundred and forty-five thousand, which means they found an extra hundred and thirty-nine thousand people in these stats, which cover the year to December twenty twenty-two, and then migration, net migration to June twenty twenty-three, was six hundred and seventy-two thousand, uh, and so that is up from six hundred and seven thousand compared to the previous twelve months. Um, so. The figures have uh, been really revised quite significantly. And the ONS, the Office for National Statistics, says this is due to unexpected patterns in the behaviour of migrants. (laughs) I I don't fully know what that means. But anyway, the bottom line is this is a huge number of people, a huge number in in the net migration stats.
2: Yeah, it is. I'm beginning to want to kind of call this government the kind of one step forward, two steps back (laughs) government because, you know, you hold... Uh, you hold the headlines with your autumn statement. You look at the front pages of most of the papers today, the centre-right newspapers. They'll be relatively happy with the coverage. Quite a few of them say biggest tax cut since the 1980s. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're all quite caveated, even the centre-right ones. But the headline, if you're a punter walking past you know the newspaper stand, all looks quite good and quite positive. And then two things happen today. One, uh, energy bills go up again. Um, and are, are nudging towards two thousand again, which for the average uh, homeowner now means an extra ninety four pounds uh, a year on top of the amount of money they're already paying. Mm-hmm. And two, the immigration stats come out, uh, and they are awful. Um, uh, if you're on the kind of that sort of side of the of the political spectrum, if you like. Um, and a couple of things about this. One, it's very important to remember, this is legal migration. This is not irregular migration. This mm-hmm. is legal net migration. Uh, now, just to put this in context, in 1992, net migration to this country was 49,000. Uh, to also put this into context, because I went back and I, when you look at these figures now, they're so... Uh, overwhelmingly huge, and bear in mind that obviously they are increased substantially by uh, taking uh, a lot of Ukrainian families and also taking a lot of Hong Kong citizens. So there is some kind of context and backdrop for why they are so huge. Mm. But I was I was thinking about um, Theresa May uh, when she became Prime Minister, as she had as Home Secretary. Uh, I thought at the time kind of stubbornly insisting on sticking to the Conservative pledge about reducing net migration to below 100,000. And I thought, well, you know, this is bonkers. You know, how on earth could we have, you know, with figures at this level, how on earth could we have thought we were ever going to get there? But to put this in context... In 2017, when Theresa May as Prime Minister was still promising to bring net migration down to below 100,000... Uh, the net migration figure that year was 270,000. That's still considerably north of 100,000, but feels considerably more doable than than it would now. And in 2019, when Boris Johnson was promising to take back control of our money laws and borders, uh, it was at 275,000. So this huge exponential rise... Um, has come about in the last sort of three or four years. Now, like I say, some of that is external factors. I caught an exchange on uh, I'm a Celebrity last night between Nigel Farage and um, a woman called Nella Rose, and it was about immigration. And I thought, well, this kind of sums it up, really, and why we've got such extraordinarily high levels of uh, net migration at the moment is... We have a chronic labour shortage in this country. So Nigel Farage was uh, banging on, quite rightly, to some certain extent, about the pressure placed on our infrastructure, on transport, and housing, on uh, you know, on our healthcare system and our school kit system. Uh, because if you're going to uh, have net migration at this level, you've got to have the infrastructure to be able to support it. Otherwise, it becomes a you know an issue of social cohesion. Uh, and Nella Rose. Uh, came back with the equally right point uh, that, you know, if you didn't have levels of migration at, the, at, at, at this level, then who would be staffing your hospitals? Who would be looking after your elderly relatives in social care? Because it wouldn't be British people. Mm. Um, and actually I was listening to, uh, an interview on Times Radio this morning, very Great. good radio station. I can wholeheartedly <laughs> endorse and recommend it. Uh, and it was Jonathan Gullis, who's part mm. of the New Conservatives, who were this rump of you know Danny Kruger, Miriam Capes, this sort of you know Liz Truss uh, satellite organisation, if you like, within mm. the Conservative Party. And he was saying, look, you know, this we've got to stop tweaking at out the outside. We've got to stop meddling and twiddling with stuff. We've got to take radical and drastic action. And one of the things that the new conservatives are genuinely proposing is that we literally prevent uh, this uh, workforce you know, scheme from being able to operate so that we force people in Britain to train up the right people, leaving aside what happens in the lag between one and the other um, and how you're supposed to staff your hospitals and your social care. But the reality is that some of this is born out of the fact that we have a chronic labour shortage uh, in this country. And you know there's an awful lot of british people that will not do some of these jobs they just will mm. not do them it comes back again to what we were talking about earlier in the autumn statement that you know we've got we've got a chancellor now pushing a, a scheme where effectively after two years of intensive help and support and everything if you refuse to to work in a job you'll get your benefits taken away from you mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um you know, because there are there are certain jobs that some British people will not do. And added to which, whether they did them or not, we have a labour shortage problem in this country, not the skill shortage, a labour shortage problem. So some of it is about that. And, you know, but what we need to, to, to have an honest and open and robust conversation about is if you're going to do that, then you're going to put a strain on your infrastructure because it is woefully, woefully underinvested in in parts. Mm. And how do you square that? Everything is a trade-off in politics. Everything is a trade-off. So how do you address this? Because none of these issues are going to get any easier as we go forward. None of these issues. Because irregular migration, illegal uh, migration is going to become more acute also as, as, you know, climate change renders, you know, vast swathes of, of of certain parts of the world uninhabitable. So, yeah. you know, we've got to start to face these problems right now and have a conversation that just doesn't run along binary lines. Because if we don't have this conversation, you'll see more of what we've seen this week, which is people like, um, you know, the new Dutch Prime Minister Wilders, is it? It's just yeah, been elected right, from the Gert far right. Yeah. Wilders. Now, this is a classic, you know, you've got a surprise victory for the far right. It's not centre right. It's the far right leader, uh, and then the, the second largest party is a coalition of uh, socialists and greens. Yeah, you know, and again, there's one of those things that just sums up everything about where we are at the moment. Not just in Britain, but right across Europe and in America, is this increasing polar- polarisation of debate, and actually that debate being dominated by people in the margins rather than the you know the the, the mainstream center center ground voice which is being drowned out by this kind of populist vision uh on the on the right uh and this you know politics of grievance on the left
0: yeah he uh just for context on gert wilder since we have mentioned him he wants to uh, close the borders uh, basically that was part of his campaigning uh, promising borders closed he did though he's put on hold his promise to ban the quran um, there was quite a lot of sort of anti-Islam rhetoric in his campaigning, but he's tempered that somewhat um, throughout. Um, I mean, it's just yes, it's quite astonishing. He's also been talking about nexus. It's,
2: well, it's fr- and it's and it's and it's frightening. Is is what it is. I mean, obviously, if you're uh, a Muslim family living there, I mean, it's yeah. extremely frightening. Completely. But you know, to say oh, we're just going to close the borders as if they're not, you know bound by you know, European free movement, Schengen, et cetera, et cetera. It's just mm. a nonsense. And I know that you know, unhappy people look for populist answers, easy solutions to things in life. But you know, I'm afraid this is politics. You know, there are no easy solutions. There are only uncomfortable trade-offs and least worst options. And things aren't going to get any better anytime soon because the problems that we have, the big transitional problems, are going to make social cohesion harder and harder. And if we don't end up having a grown up and honest debate about it without it being dominated by people screaming from the far right and screaming Mm. from the hard left, then we're really going to be in trouble.
0: Let's go on. We've got a few minutes left on the podcast and we want to spend them on the COVID inquiry and just the latest from the COVID inquiry. So actually this week, uh, most notably, was Professor Sir Chris Whitty, who is still England's chief medical officer, i.e. the top doctor, the top medical voice in the country who advises the government and was advising the government during covid and also Jonathan Van Tam. These names, it's funny, you, you're so familiar. They were on the telly basically every day for such a long time a few years ago, and they're still there, they're still working away, still doing their thing, uh, but obviously a little less publicly. Now, I actually watched the first day of Chris Whitty's evidence for aforementioned Times Radio purposes. He's a really fascinating man. I think one of the first observations I, I made was that he had no notes. He had nothing in front of him. And I tweeted, observing that he had a sort of small pile of paper just off to his side, but then somebody, a correspondent in the room replied to me on Twitter saying, those aren't actually notes, those are sort of, those are the rules for what he, like the kind of code of conduct for the inquiry. So it's not even as if he's sort of got a few things scribbled down. He was doing it all from memory. Now, there was an interesting few bits in there about lockdown that he thought were locked down too late in the first wave, but also he was emphasising that he and indeed the sort of scientific and medical advisors, were not there to make political decisions. They were simply there to provide the technical um, information, stats, data, etc. And it was for the politicians to sort of make their mind up. Now, he followed uh, Sir Patrick Vallance, who is no longer chief scientific advisor, but he was during the pandemic. So he was also at the inquiry this week. I suppose one of the the, and the crucial thing to hold in your mind is we're, as we discuss the inquiry, whenever you hear discussions of the inquiry, is the whole purpose of it, which is what can we learn from last time that might make next time better, um, and the politicians, understandably, Kirsty, are featuring quite heavily in terms of the scientists' recollections of things. Um, I think it's fair to say the word chaos comes up quite a lot. Chris Whitty used the word chaotic for the sort of political operation around Boris Johnson, although he's very complimentary of civil servants. It's worth noting we will actually hear from Boris Johnson and Rishi Sunak at the inquiry. We think in a couple of weeks' time, potentially the first week of December, but it's a little up for grabs right now. Um, but the politicians are are featuring quite heavily in all of this. Is it? proving to be, is it presenting problems for Rishi Sunak at this point as as current Prime Minister?
2: It certainly is. Look, I mean, if we hadn't been all obsessing about how screwed we are as a country (laughs) around the autumn statement, this would have taken a lot more Mm. media attention and had a lot more cut through than it had. But what in essence uh, uh, these three witnesses have provided this week is, um, and last week, is unequivocal uh, agreement that at no point before the then-Chancellor, now Prime Minister Rishi Sunak, announced his eat-out-to-help-out scheme in the summer of 2020, at no point did they seek scientific advice about the consequences of that. Now, Rishi Sunak was asked about this at Prime Minister's questions yesterday, and he said, on the record and in the House, the government uh, sought scientific advice. Now, as ever in politics, both these things can be true. Mm. But then you have to look at, you know, what is the, actually the detail on which allows Rishi Sunak to say that? Because if it's not sorted from, you know, the chief medical officer, the deputy chief medical officer, or the chief scientific officer, then... Who has the government sorted it from? Bob down the road? I don't, you know, they have regular and routine meetings. Yeah. And the idea that, I mean, Jonathan Van Tam is the Deputy uh, uh, Chief Medical Officer or JVT, because mm-hmm. uh, in politics, you never meet anybody that, or anything that you don't want to acronym down. <laughs> Uh, so JVT, as he was known, to mm. give him his super cool nickname, um, said that first he heard about it was when he saw it on the television. Mm. Uh, now that is, in, you know, inconceivable that something of that size and that scale that had such an impact, or might have potentially had such an impact on the spread of the virus, would have been rolled out without the three most senior scientific medical advisors to the government. Knowing nothing about it and not having been consulted and not being given time and expert uh, advice fed into that. Now, actually, there is no evidence that that alone caused a spike, right? Because it was August uh, and the government's job is to balance, obviously, the science uh, against other concerns, you know, concerns about the economy, concerns about people's mental health, et cetera, mm. et cetera. Uh, And I think, I take the point about, you know, our job wasn't to, you know, to influence uh, the politicians, but it's, you know, the reality is, is that, you know, all scientific and medical advice was always going to go with the most risk-averse scenario. Your job is to stop the spread of a disease, right? And that is... Whether you're pushing that and banging a table and saying you must do this or not, it's not the point. You know, Your job is to lay out the consequences, the worst case scenario consequences of not doing something. And from a scientific and from a medical point of view, the simplest and easiest thing to do was just locked us away for a couple of years or locked us away for a bit and then squashed the sombrero and, and, and. So there are a number of ways of managing the disease, but all of those ways of managing the disease, manage it in a, in a vacuum, if you like. And it doesn't take into account all the other things that in fairness, a government has to take into account. Yeah. Like compliance rates, like people's mental health, mm-hmm. like the impact on the NHS, which we're now all feeling, uh, and like the impact on businesses, which you know thousands of businesses are now feeling too.
0: I firmly believe... Also that we are we can't so when I was getting ready to cover Chris Whitty's evidence, I was trying to get my head back back into this the space that it was in in 2020 because hindsight is helpful to an extent, but it can also get in the way. but i'm 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 so convinced that we are now reviewing the government's actions through the prism of Partygate. And I think we kind of hear that when we talk to, you know, a few weeks ago, we were talking to um, Scarlett Maguire, um from JL Partners, the polling firm, and she basically said that, that Partygate dominates so many things still. And I do wonder if we would be more lenient on the government's decision making in our own analysis now, if, we, if they hadn't partied during lockdown, and if we were able to kind of look back and say, you know, they were leading... They were making these tough decisions, all power to them, because it was an awful time. But because we know they were breaking the rules in quite a heinous way, actually we, we are more judgmental of their decision, decision making.
2: Uh, I'm not entirely sure I agree with that. I think mm-hmm. that's very true in style, but not necessarily in substance. So mm-hmm. I think if we didn't know about Partygate, we might have been slightly more surprised by just how chaotic mm-hmm. Boris Johnson was uh in in leadership and his ability to take decisions but but frankly is anybody really surprised that you know he was the wrong prime minister for that crisis uh i don't think i'm sort of reeling from the revelations that you know he <laughs> veered in one way and veered in another and mm, you know or the know. imprint of the last person so. that had just yeah. left the room so yeah. i'm not entirely sure that's true for me it feels a little bit like um uh, showing my age <laughs> uh the iraq war Now, I can remember, you know, there's a lot of people, you know, afterwards saying, oh, you know, we were lied to, et cetera, et cetera. A million people came out in the streets, uh, you know, to to protest against the Iraq war. I think it's probably the biggest Mm -hmm. um, uh, street protest in in modern history because not just, you know, they thought it was an illegal war and because they thought, as I think Robin Cook, the late Robin Cook said in the House, There were no weapons of mass destruction in any sense that people would understand in Iraq, right? So it wasn't like people were pulling the wool over our eyes at the time. You know, people, you know, had an understanding about what they thought they knew at the time. And it was confirmed, if you like, later on. And I think this is the same sort of scenario. Mm. I think you kind of knew pretty well at the time that, you know, number 10 was. Like a bunch of headless chickens at the start, I think you knew in September that politics was playing a much heavier part in delaying and you know an autumn lockdown than mm-hmm. than the science um and I think you knew that that was because uh you know it was a conservative instinct not to lock down and not to you know and to balance that up more against the economy. I think we kind of knew all of this. Um and I don't think anybody wandered around in eat out to help out thinking gee this will have no impact on the spread of the disease I don't yeah. you know uh, you know by by then we were all kind of covid experts we were all saying hey what's the r rate today and all this mm-hmm. kind of stuff so if you chose to take part in eat out to help out it's because you were probably relatively young relatively healthy and you you know you weighed the risks of going out uh, against Uh, you know, the rewards of going out. And you thought, you know what? I haven't seen my mates in ever. I'm going stir crazy. Mm -hmm. What the hell? I'm going to go out and have a nice meal and let the government pick up the tab for it, you know, some of the tab for it. Um, So I'm I'm not entirely sure, you know, and if you were, you know, and if you were very vulnerable or quite elderly, you probably wouldn't have taken up that scheme. So I'm not entirely sure that I buy this, you know.
0: Interesting.
2: I think, we, I think we kind of knew what we knew. And, mm-hmm. you know, all mm-hmm. of this is doing is just uh, confirming in absolutely gruesome detail what we knew.
0: Mm. Uh, well, we'll see what happens when Boris Johnson and Rishi Sunak give evidence. As we say, it's, it's still unclear. They don't sort of tell you who's up at the inquiry until sort of the, the week before. But some point before Christmas is what we're told.
2: Yeah. I mean, uh, they, they should be up then. And, and this, this will be the absolute focus, I think, for, yeah. for Rishi Sunak. This is where it will get um, – this was where it has the potential to become very awkward. Mm. If he said in the House of Commons, on the record, in Hansard, that the government did consult and take scientific advice, who was that from? Who was it? Um, and if I can just lighten the mood just a little bit.
0: Yes, just in conclusion. Um,
2: Because you know politics is pretty short of people who are cool. Uh, (laughs) JVT was always seen to be very cool uh, in Downing Street, and uh, I just for me like the moment of twenty twenty four, the light moment of twenty twenty four. So and this starts in a very dark place. I'm sorry. So obviously JVT, like other the other scientists, um, is speaking about the horrific levels of abuse and threats that not just he and his family got because of his high-profile role during the pandemic. Um, But I don't think you'll ever hear anything quite as wonderfully British as this. So JVT and his family were at home one evening. Uh, The police came round and advised that they should move to another location because of threats to their safety, Um, and they might have to leave for for several days while uh, those investigations were being carried out to which JVT told the inquiry this week, well, you know, we were going to do that, but we have a cat. We didn't have anybody else to look after the cat. So uh, we stayed where we were, which is about the most <laughs> heroically British thing I think I've ever heard. And uh, if I didn't admire the man enormously anyway, it would just, you know, uh, send my admiration for him into the stratosphere. What yeah. a guy.
0: And it's not too late for JVT to do Strictly. I mean, it's too late for this year, but he could come back next year. We'd still love that, wouldn't we? A bit of... Jonathan Van Tam doing a ballroom dancing I'd watch that
2: no people who are quietly cool are quietly cool because they don't play into their coolness (laughs) you know I think the minute you go into that strictly thing, you've you've bought into your Be own blown publicity. <laughs> yes.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, right. Thanks, Kirsty. Thank you very much. Uh, good to chat this week, and thanks to Ian Mulhern as well, our other, our other guest uh, on um, Autumn Statement. Your thoughts always welcome. You can email hello at WhitehallSources We're here every week to analyse politics for you with those who have lived it, who know it, who have experienced it, and can tell you all about it. Make sure you follow and subscribe, and we'll talk to you next week.